0: Ladies and gentlemen, I can detect a kind of expectant hush. (laughs) So, although it's not quite 5.15 yet, let me do my warm-up act by introducing the speaker and also saying something about this occasion. The Bestman Lecture, given every year, by the way, for newcomers, there are seats down here at the front, please don't be shy. Um, The Bestman Lecture is the high point of the year for the Bestman Centre for the Enlightenment. That was founded as an offshoot of the Voltaire Foundation some years ago by Nicholas Cronk. It's now been absorbed into the um, TORCH programme on the Enlightenment. TORCH, as most of you will know, is the acronym for the Oxford Centre for Research in the Humanities, the Oxford counterpart to CRASH in Cambridge. Um, There was some dispute as to whether TORCH was an entirely appropriate name, because some people associated with um, the act of torching, but we thought that the sense of torch, light, enlightenment, um, was, far, was far superior. The Besserman Besseman Centre also, in, the, in this new guise, is reaching out much more than in the past, beyond France, to the international enlightenment, and one sign of this um, um, extension of our mission is that we've invited a scholar of the German Enlightenment Professor Joe Wheely from Cambridge to give this year's lecture. Joe Wheely is um, professor of um, German history and thought at Cambridge. And a fellow of keys college. He began with a book about toleration in Hamburg. Um, from 1529 to 1819 the book that soon afterwards appeared in German. He's published many first-rate articles but one of the most remarkable things about him is that he's one of the rare academics who can hold their nerves and work for many years on massive research projects without worrying about the demands of excessive REEs and REFs for which he provides plenty of material in the form of first-rate articles anyway. The book in question is Germany and the Holy Roman Empire uh, 1493 to 1806, two volumes, total of some 1,400 pages, which appeared from OUP in 2012 as part of the Oxford History of Early Modern Europe. There are many books commissioned for these at that that um, don't get finished. This one has been finished. It's available in paperback, and if you wish, you can buy the German translation. Was published two months ago and apparently the first printing is already sold out um, joe has various projects on hands now one of which is a volume in oup's very short introduction series on the holy roman empire but today he's going to speak to us on the theme true enlightenment can be both achieved and beneficial the german enlightenment and its interpretation joe
1: Uh, Thank you, Richie, for those very kind words of introduction. Thank you also to you again, Richie, and Nicholas Kronk, uh, and uh, his colleagues for having firstly invited me and for having made the arrangements for uh, my uh, stay in Cambridge really so uh, smooth and agreeable. Wahre Aufklärung kann erreicht und segensreich werden. True enlightenment can be both achieved and beneficial or perhaps to use more colloquial sounding but actually quite appropriate 18th century terminology, true enlightenment can be achieved and make us happy. One could be forgiven for thinking that my title was taken from one of those numerous 18th century essays by German writers associated with the Aufklärung that later critics denounced as typically facile thoughts of a superficial and hopelessly idealistic movement. It is, however, nothing of the kind. The statement can be found in the 11th edition of the Brockhaus Encyclopedia, published in 1864, one of the key handbooks of the German Bildungsbürgertum, the equivalent in many ways of the Encyclopedia Britannica. To find such an affirmation of the Enlightenment in a key German publication of this time is, in fact, rather surprising. It's not so much that it's the exception to the rule, on the contrary, similar statements may be found throughout the 19th century and into the first uh, decades of the 20th century. What is remarkable, however, is that such statements don't fit into the commonly accepted interpretation of the German Enlightenment and its legacy. For the story that emerges from much of the scholarly literature of the 19th century to the present is rather different. The German Enlightenment, it is said, died in the 1790s. What followed was an allegedly an increasingly radical series of reactions to it and rejections of its fundamental principles and values. Attempts to arrive, uh, revive its ideals, for example in the 1920s, were short-lived. Even after 1945, it was often suggested, and is still suggested today, that those who wished to try once more to connect with the ideals of the 18th century struggled, at least initially, against the tide. Werner Schneiders, for example, considered by many to be the leading German modern German scholar of Enlightenment thought, argues that the Aufklärung effectively ended in the 1780s, and that thereafter, as he wrote, the fact that Germany too had been a country of the Enlightenment was forgotten for a very long time. Frederick Beiser went even further when he wrote in 1992 that the attack on the Aufklärung in the 1790s cast a shadow over Germany's future, to not a negligible degree, the shadow remains. I shall return to this dark narrative in a minute, but first I'd like to address some key issues that have preoccupied Enlightenment scholarship generally in recent years. Speaking of a German Enlightenment and of a specifically German interpretation of the Enlightenment, brings to mind the debate provoked by the arguments developed by Jonathan Israel in a series of three massive volumes, so far totalling over 3,000 pages in print, and in addition, his book on the French Revolution, numerous articles, reviews, and uh, savage and polemical responses to his critics. He's not here, is he? Um, (laughs) The debate about this body of work has become so important, however, that I believe no serious discussion of the Enlightenment can now take place without clear reference to it. The essence of Israel's argument is easily stated. He suggests that the late 17th and 18th century saw the development of what one might describe as a unitary enlightenment. It was founded on the radical new interpretation of God and the world by Spinoza. The key, according to Israel, was Spinoza's monism, his rejection of any difference between matter and spirit, which led to a rejection of any kind of hierarchy at all. Originally developed in a religious context, this notion was rapidly applied more widely in politics and society as well. Over time, it fostered the development of a clear-cut set of convictions or objectives. Secularist and tolerant without reservation, also egalitarian and democratic. Furthermore, anti-colonial and in favour of sexual emancipation. Some critics have described this as a package but I think from the outset, Israel's been clear that he believes these ideas developed progressively and that they were not fully formed until the middle decades of the 18th century. His emphasis on the core on a core of enlightenment ideas does not narrow his focus as much as some critics have claimed. Rather, it provides him with a distinctive, if highly controversial, organizing tool: the democratic, egalitarian and Republican impulses that Israel identifies as the core were espoused by what he calls the radical enlightenment. From the 1660s, however, and into the early 19th century, there were two other parallel ideological camps, the conservative enlightenment of thinkers such as Locke, Voltaire, and Montesquieu on the one hand, and the counter enlightenment on the other. The former sought accommodation and compromise to harmonize religion with science to reform monarchy. The latter obviously sought to expose the alleged fallacies and harmfulness of the enlightenment especially the radical Enlightenment. This view of a movement that spawned two parallel and opposing deformations enables Israel to insist that there was really only one Enlightenment. He is adamant that there was no such thing as what has been variously described as a cluster of multiple Enlightenments, a family of parallel Enlightenments, or a series of parallel national Enlightenments or Enlightenments in different national contexts. Equally, Israel rejects the views of those who've argued that the British Enlightenment was the true source of these ideas. British society, he insists, and Enlightenment thinking which evolved within it moved progressively away from the core values over the 18th century towards what he describes as a socially conservative attitude and a strident insistence on limited monarchy, aristocracy, racial hierarchy and empire. Israel's narrative takes a different geographical course. The radical enlightenment, and hence, almost immediately, its moderate and critical or antagonistic variants, began in the Low Countries and then spread to France, which was the main arena within which the radical enlightenment then subsequently developed. Ultimately, argues, this strand of thought caused the revolution, or rather its later exponents, dominated the democratic and republican phase of the revolution between 1789 and 1799, following the collapse of royal, aristocratic and ecclesiastical power, and at a time while conservatism, moderation and authoritarian populism populism, all fragmented and weakened each other. Implicit in that last quotation is Israel's view that Robespierre and his colleagues uh, uh, were not exponents, really, of radical enlightenment, but part of what he describes as a populist authoritarian revolution, rooted in a simplified <coughs> counter-enlightenment Rousseauism, aiming at dictatorship, distingu- extinguishing dissent and suppressing freedom of the press and expression. This is an important point because Israel clearly wishes to preempt any argument that there was a relationship between the Enlightenment and 20th century totalitarianism. For this would conflict with his own central point that the core values of the radical Enlightenment form the foundation of modern, perhaps we should specify modern, Western society today. I don't want to dwell on this particular issue, but to move on to ask what all this means in Israel's view for Germany. Israel repeatedly emphasises the constrictions of German society and the conservative structures of the Holy Roman Empire. He's sceptical, indeed scathing, about the claims made for enlightened despotism, particularly in the larger territories such as Austria and Prussia. There was more scope, he says, for intellectual freedom and enlightenment reform in the smaller territories, but not much in most cases. Yet German thinkers nonetheless feature at every stage in Israel's analysis from the late 17th century to the 1790s. Over his three volumes, which cover so far the period up to 1790, Israel sketches (coughs) an an, an outline of the development of German radical thought. Before about 1740, this includes many lesser-known, now partly forgotten figures, but thereafter the focus shifts to Reimarus, Lessing, Kant, Herder, Goethe and Schiller, as well as people like (coughs) Carl Friedrich Barth, Adam Weishaupt, and others. Variously, they contributed to what Israel calls the fracturing of German Protestant culture, and inspired or participated in key debates in the later 1780s about the legacy of Spinoza and the significance of Kant's critical philosophy. (coughs) And discussion of the revolution then prompted Goethe and Schiller to develop their doctrine of art as the new religion. Of course, we don't exactly know where Israel would take his argument next, or how exactly he would <coughs> conclude. His fourth, and one one assume, final volume is still in progress, but it's difficult to see how he can develop his German strand very far. Heine and Marx were no doubt figure, and Hegel, of course, was the last gasp of moderate enlightenment in Germany, but who else? In fact, Israel seems already to have written Germany into a version of the German Sonderweg thesis, the school of post-1945 <coughs> historical thought that sought to explain the deep roots of National Socialism in German history in terms of the absence of a radical or liberal tradition. Germany, these historians argued, was a country without revolution, where intellectuals devoted themselves to art rather than politics for subscribing to a new religion of art was clearly a way of avoiding revolution. German revolutionaries, or perhaps one should say putative revolutionaries, were thin on the ground, and none came anywhere near to achieving anything other than provoking censorship or other forms of government (coughs) clampdown. It seems to me, uh, in two respects, that Israel has produced something that he set out to avoid. Despite his aspiration to write a transnational history of the Enlightenment, and to avoid the old national narratives of the history of that movement, he's come up with something uh, remarkably similar, particularly in the third volume, uh, which is devoted to the democratic Enlightenment, 1750-1790. to It's true that this volume also includes sections devoted to all European countries, covers North America, Ibero-America, Batavia, Dutch Asia, India, China and Japan as well. But the real core of his history is the story of France culminating in the revolution, and the second strand of the narrative is clearly Germany, to which over, uh, just over 20% of the third volume is devoted. Now, like any good historian, Israel is sensitive to the contingencies of time, place, institutional framework and tradition. What he demonstrates, I think, at every stage is how such contingencies shaped, facilitated, transformed, impeded, hindered or defeated the development of Enlightenment ideas in various parts of the world. That Israel privileges one particular set of ideals is another matter. He's still operating, however, with something that he claimed was obsolete, namely a model of parallel context, which we can, I believe, loosely label national. If we look at the argument of Israel's third volume, what we have in some ways is simply a new version of the classic tale of two Enlightenments. A progressive French Enlightenment, albeit now with Dutch roots, and a German Enlightenment, albeit now with a radical core, which, however, shied away from the revolutionary challenge in the 1780s and 1790s, and then soon afterwards failed. Here, Israel comes close to the traditional master narrative of the German Enlightenment, as it was written by German scholars from the late 19th century to the 1960s, and as it, in many respects, still characterises the view of leading German scholars. It's important to note, of course, that Israel's account has a different content, but the structural similarity is very striking. The old German narrative ran roughly as follows it started with with the disparaging remarks that Hegel made about the Berlin Aufklärung around 1800 and in his later lectures on the history of philosophy. The works of mid-19th century scholars such as Karl Biedermann and Hermann Hetner, who championed Enlightenment values, were rarely appreciated. More typical, it was said, were those who, from the 1880s onwards, echoed Hegel in writing about the Aufklärung as a superficial, shallow movement inspired by ideas imported from France. It was, they concluded, a fundamentally un-German movement. Indeed, the greatest achievement of German thought and culture was said to have been that it overcame or transcended the Aufklärung. This narrative never to necessitated a certain organisation of the material. Uh, Leibniz, for example, was deemed not to belong to the Aufklärung at all, in any sense. More curiously, even Kant was also separated out and labelled as the founder of German Idealism, the philosophical movement which culminated in the work of Fichte, Schlegel, Hegel and Schelling, uh, and which allegedly represented an anti-Western, anti-rational and uniquely German way of understanding the world. In literature and historical thinking, there was a parallel movement. The reaction against Enlightenment began, if anything, slightly earlier, before the 1880s. Here. Hamann, for example, and Herder were identified as progenitors of what Wilhelm Dilthey identified in his 1867 inaugural lecture uh, as die deutsche Bewegung. Three generations of innovative German writers and thinkers, starting with the Sturm und Drang in the 1770s and reaching a high point with Schiller and the mature Goethe. If idealism was the philosophical reflection or manifestation of the German spirit, Classicism and, above all, Romanticism were its literary and artistic expressions. By about 1900, as Max Wundt once observed, the Aufklärung had become the whipping boy of German Geistesgeschichte. Indeed, from around that time, the word Aufklang itself was increasingly used to denote an historical epoch rather than an ongoing process. It was consigned firmly to the past, the myth of the Deutsche Bewegung became an established orthodoxy, and it was given further force by Friedrich Meinecke's notion at the end of the 19th century, that at the end of the 18th century, sorry, Meinecke says at the end of the 18th century, the Germans were a Kulturnation, but not yet a Staatsnation. This, he said, both explained the late development of the Germans but also their ultimate superiority. Their mindset had developed slowly, but in working through and overcoming the Enlightenment, the Germans had achieved a greater depth of profundity than the rest of the world put together. This mindset, it was said, triumphed militarily and politically in the so-called wars of liberation against France between 1813 and 1815, a triumph which demonstrated what great things might be achieved in the future. Within a few years, these ideas became emblematic, became emblematic of nationalist solidarity with the German cause in the First World War and the basis for rejection both of the peace settlement of 1919 and of the republican system that was allegedly imposed upon Germany by it. Few establishment intellectuals, notably those who held chairs of Germanistic history, philosophy, theology at German universities, deviated from them. There were notable survivals from an older generation, like Ernst Troeltsch, for example, and Adolf von Harnack, whose influential works, largely written before 1914, still reiterated the continuing significance of the Aufklärung. Yet among younger scholars, figures such as Karl Ahner, the sociologist Ernst Mannheim, or the philosopher Ernst Cassirer, were marginal or marginalised figures. Ahner, for example, was a staunch national liberal patriot, who supported the war effort yet strenuously opposed the folkish nationalism of the Pan-Germans. He was, however, a pastor and gained his first university position at the age 50. Furthermore, his death in 1933, four uh, years after the publication of his great book on the theology of the Aufklärung, effectively meant that his work was only rediscovered in the 1960s. Mannheim, a Hungarian German Jew, had been approved for his Habilitation at the University of Leipzig, but in 1933 he withdrew his application and left Germany. Cassirer's great work on the Philosopher of the Aufklärung was completed in 1932. The following year he was dismissed from his Hamburg professorship. Among German writers of the centre and right on the political spectrum, things were little different. Thomas Mann here is a notable exception in moving from war denunciation of the Enlightenment to a new appreciation of its values by the end of the 1920s. More typical of what was to come was Hans Neumann, Neumann, sorry, who wrote in 1932 that the Aufklärung had afflicted the German people like an illness that it was ultimately responsible for capitalism and the proletariat, for Marxism and the economic worldview, for overpopulation and the politicization of the masses, and for the domination of society by machines. These phenomena, he claimed, were all profoundly linked, if rather mysteriously, and like a horde of apocalyptic horsemen, he wrote, they had brought the German people to the brink of catastrophe. Naumann was an early member of the Nazi party. Others, perhaps not surprising, (laughs) others were less strident, and one should of course be wary of branding all critics of the Aufklärung as proto-fascists or proto-Nazis, as some have been inclined to do. Yet, disappointingly, all but a few German scholars found their views to be entirely compatible with the spirit of the New Age. The National Socialist regime rapidly integrated the by now mainstream negative perceptions of the Aufklärung into its own worldview and into the guidelines set for schools and universities. Lessing was admired for his alleged hatred of France, which allowed many Nazis to overlook his rather misguided philosemitism. Winkelmann, Kant, and Schiller were also praised as, uh, cited as praiseworthy anti-French thinkers. Moses Mendelssohn was despised as one of the originators of the modern Jewish Jewish intellectual conspiracy. Herder was revered revered as a hero for having braced himself against the degenerate intellectual character of his time. (coughs) The natural corollary to all this was, of course, the view of German Romanticism as the true origin of what was claimed to be the steel Romanticism of the present. The writings of Ernst Moritz Arndt and Kleist and Goethe's Faust, a perhaps unlikely trio, but nonetheless, these were the trio that were set as examples. These were the cultural foundations, it was said, and artistic foundations of the new Germany of the 1930s. Paradoxically, perhaps, the Aufklärung was not immediately rehabilitated following the defeat of Nazism. Its significance was, of course, recognized from the outset in a certain sense in East Germany. Here, scholars uh, started from Marx and Engels' critical insight that the Aufklärung was essentially a bourgeois movement and to be criticized accordingly. Yet it contained within it, they said, the elements of the movement that would succeed it and culminate in revolutionary transformation. Hence, Marxist scholars concentrated, above all, on exploring the tradition of pre-Marxist materialism in Germany. The work of people like Gottfried Stiele, Gunter Mühlfort, uh, Siegfried Volgast, and others, <coughs> which laid the foundations for a new interest in the German radical tradition. It's interesting that Jonathan Israel acknowledges the work, for example, of Mühlfort in particular, as a major influence on his own work on this theme. The activities of East German scholars, of course, to some extent, inhibited their West German counterparts. (coughs) Certainly, all attempts made by Werner Kaus to establish a German society for 18th century studies across the Berlin Wall, as it were, founded both on the ambivalence of the DDR government and on the reluctance of West German scholars to cross the ideological divide, or even to engage in research on similar topics to their East German counterparts. Two other factors were also important. Firstly, there was certainly a renewed preoccupation in West Germany with the tradition of Western humanism, and the Aufklärung featured in that along with the Renaissance. So there is a revival of interest, but that early exploration of the roots of a better German way, often undertaken by decidedly Christian writers, was still by and large caught up in the old German way of thinking about the West as a Abendland, in which Germany, and especially the manifestations of German idealism and Romanticism, occupied a special role. The influential Catholic writer, for example, Reinhold Schneider, Uh, still after 1945, blamed the Enlightenment values such as toleration for the loss of faith and Christian orientation. Schneider, who by 1948 had become known as the conscience of the nation, believed that Lessing and his successors had undermined Christianity by simply regarding Jesus as a teacher rather than as a saviour. The return of the German spirit for which Schneider hoped to pave the way, was thus predicated on a rejection of the key principles of the Aufklärung. Schneider's influence on Catholic Germany was immense, and it's perhaps not surprising that research into the Catholic Aufklärung didn't really uh, begin until the 1980s. One could make a similar case for Protestants who also shared An ambivalence about the Aufklärung, at least at first and only in the later 1960s, began to preoccupy themselves again with the re-evaluation of the theology of the 18th century. Secondly, any optimistic view of the Aufklärung after 1945 now also faced major obstacles in the form of powerful critiques of the Enlightenment from both the left and from liberal conservatives. The challenge of the left is better known. East Germans, who criticised the Aufklärung, did so in order to liberate it from its chains and thus fulfil itself via the dictatorship of the proletariat. Their Western counterparts, however, were confronted in 1947 by the deeply pessimistic critique of Adorno and Horkheimer. The insistence of Dialectic de Aufklang that reason necessarily turned into its opposite seemed to deny any way forward all. <coughs> Far from overcoming myth, they argue, um, Aufklärung merely enslaved society to a new and even more pernicious mythology. Borrowing from Max Weber, when Marx failed them, Adorno and Horkheimer explained the disaster of Western society in their own lifetimes in terms of the paradoxical history of rationality, which rested on Weber's distinction between instrumental rationality and value rationality. So, as instrumental reason becomes ever more efficient, so the reason that embodies or conveys values is stifled, repressed, and ultimately destroyed. Enlightenment, in other words, had been responsible for totalitarianism, and hence for the disasters of the 20th century. (coughs) Though they never spelled them out, the implications for German history were clear. The Aufklärung had led to extreme rationalisation, This had then been accompanied by the emergence of a new irrationalism first manifested in idealism and Romanticism. The tragic denouement, the destructive nadir of Deutscher Geist, was the Third Reich and the Holocaust. If, as it seems, Adorno and Horkheimer really did plan to write a rettung der Aufklärung, a, a rehabilitation of the Enlightenment, Um, They never certainly uh, got round to it, and there's no uh, work that I'm aware of by either of them which indicates any basis on which they might have written that, because I think they were never really able to work out how, in fact, reason might overcome its allegedly innate destructive tendencies. And that left the rather unhelpful implication that since there was no possible future for the Enlightenment, there was really no reason to study it, except for forensic interest. More or less simultaneously, um, the Enlightenment also came under attack from the liberal conservative perspective. Thinkers such as Karl Popper, Hannah Arendt, Talmon, developed the notion that the bourgeois world was born with deep flaws that ultimately caused its destruction. The young Reinhard Kozelek's (coughs) influential work, Kritik und Krise, published in 1959, argued that the Enlightenment had developed fateful utopian ideals. He suggested that the subordination of politics to the pursuit of these ideals in the late 18th century and afterwards was the real cause for the disasters of the 20th century and of the continuing problems of a world polarised between Soviet communism and a post-Enlightenment USA. Of course, Germany was not the only country where debates about long-term effects of the Enlightenment were conducted. But I think nowhere did they have a greater impact on intellectuals than in Germany, particularly on the fragile, uncertain and politically demoralised liberal left in Adenauer's Germany of the 1950s. Nazism and the Holocaust were, after all, specifically German problems, while the Cold War was also experienced more acutely in a divided Germany living in the shadow, so it seemed, of the Soviet Union and transfixed through the 1950s by the fear of another world war. No other people, it seemed, were so marked by the failure of the Enlightenment than the Germans. It's not surprising that research into the Aufklärung failed to prosper in that kind of context. The old master narrative prevailed for a time of a sterile, rationalist movement that German intellectuals had begun to reject in the 1770s with the Sturm Drang. This only really began to change during the course of the 1960s. Politically, one might link the change to the gradual revival of the fortunes of the democratic left in Germany. Certainly, one of the key inspirations for such research was Jürgen Habermas' Strukturwandel der Öffentlichkeit, uh, of 1962, which challenged the gloomy view which had been put forward by Adorno and Horkheimer and held out the possibility of redemption through Aufklärung rather than through its rejection. The public sphere, Habermas argued, was a project that Kant had sketched out in his writings. It had been subverted by the development of capitalism in the 19th century, leading to the disaster of National Socialism and the Holocaust. After the catastrophe, and rid now of the nationalist ideology of German exceptionalism, Habermas suggested, a new generation of critical thinkers who fully embraced Western values might now be able to translate the ideal into reality. Habermas was, in fact, but one of several who were preaching the same message at around this time. Others that might be mentioned were Ludwig Marcuse, for example, looking forward to a third Aufklärung, as he called it, or Willy Oelmüller, who wrote in 1969 of the unbefriedigte, the incomplete or unfulfilled Aufklärung, that might, however, now in the present be uh, resumed and perhaps even completed. This sense of a new dawn explains much of the excitement and growing confidence of a uh, rapidly developing boom of Aufklärung research in the 1960s. Many of those involved in that early uh, stage of the revival of Aufklärung research thought of themselves as the vanguard of a new Aufklärung helping to lay the foundations for a truly free society in the later 20th century. Through the 1960s, their endeavors were typically accompanied by critical examination of the history of their own subject to uncover what they saw as the genesis of this German ideology and the ways in which the views of their predecessors had been skewed by it. This kind of academic Vergangenheitsbewältigung, working through the past or confronting a tainted academic con- uh, tradition, was felt to be the precondition for a new and more positive approach to the ideas of the 18th century. And what indeed emerged gradually was, in fact, an entirely novel view of the Aufklärung in Germany. The focus of scholarly interest moved back, to what were assumed to be the French and British origins of the Aufklärung, and to the middle decades of the 18th century, when it achieved its greatest impact. Lessing was now regarded as a more significant figure than Goethe. There was a new emphasis on the social history of ideas, of literature, and a new interest in the science, the anthropology and the scientific ideas of the Aufklärung generally. The aim was to explore the creation of the public sphere with its journals and newspapers, its clubs and associations. And at the same time, there was a determination to illuminate the variety of ideas and attitudes that the Aufklärung generated, especially the existence in Germany of a radical tradition, whether it was materialist tendencies in early 18th century or German Jacobins towards the end of the 18th century. In this respect, I think Jonathan Israel is quite right to emphasise the rediscovery of German radicalism, much of it inspired by Spinoza, as a notable scholarly achievement of the last 50 years. And this, I think, view has been uh, impressively re- reinforced by the work of Martin Mulzor on intellectual history and most recently by Kevin Hilliard's fine study of freethinkers, libertines and schwärmer in German literature between 1750 and 1800. However, I think this also raises an important question. How significant was the radical tradition in practice? How many of the individuals whose work has been rediscovered were outsiders, misfits or marginal figures? The early Spinoza's, for example, Theodor Ludwig or Daniel Georg Wachter were unimportant in their own day. Karl Friedrich Barth, the founder of the Deutsche Union, was little more than a con man. And his Deutsche Union was really a kind of Ponzi scheme rather than a serious enlightened society. And in fact, the whole thing collapsed when the fraud uh, was uh, recognised. The German Jacobins were a small minority who made no real difference and none of them came anywhere near achieving their ambitions. How much of the free thinking in literary and philosophical circles really translated into wider attitudes? The attention paid to radicalism, I believe, underlines really a rather different point. The mainstream in Germany inclined in a more moderate direction. And if there was a central text that caught the mood of the Aufklärung in Germany, It was Johann Joachim Spalding's Betrachtung über die Bestimmung des Menschen, of 6th 1748, which went through over 40 editions by the time of the author's death in 1804. So, thoughts on the destiny of man, or the determination of man. Spalding's objective was to defend the reputation of Shaftesbury against accusations of deism. His assertion that original sin did not preclude man from perfecting himself appalled orthodox Lutherans who accused him of Pelagianism. But his emphasis on the moral core of religion delighted more progressive Lutherans. And before long, his concept was transferred from its original theological context to the broader discourse on moral philosophy, and on to the no- and the notion of bestimmung, the notion of determination or destiny, was transferred from the individual Christian to mankind as a whole. Spalding's bestimmung led in many directions and proved to be as congenial to those who remained loyal to some form of established Protestantism as to those who distanced themselves from any form of organised religion. Towards the end of his life, for example, Spalding even became an admirer of Kant and revised his text to take account of Kant's teachings. Mendelssohn and Howard were among many who adjusted their own ideas to take care, uh, account of Spalding's ideas. What united all of these individuals and tendencies and the tendencies they represented was a commitment to gradualism, to a process that might reach its conclusion in generations, even centuries to come. In concrete terms, this almost invariably translated into an aversion to revolution into a desire to work with and through the existing institutions of government. In 1789 and after, predictably, most German writers were at pains to explain that Germany did not need a revolution to achieve the liberation that the French people were currently seeking through their uprising. The French needed to act in this way because their government was corrupt and oppressive. And Kant famously noted, in a, famously noted in 1798 that despite all the horrors that had unfolded in Paris over the previous years, it was on the one hand only human, that, uh, indeed proof of human, that humans have a moral sensibility, that one should have been excited by the revolution and to have been an enthusiastic observer of its prog- progress. But that didn't mean to say that one should have wanted to have the same process in Germany because it simply wasn't necessary. In Jonathan Israel's scheme of things, of course, this all counts as moderate or conservative Enlightenment, not Enlightenment at all, and he would not be the first to criticise the Aufklärung for their lack of courage and radicalism. Indeed, this very much reflects the attitudes of German Aufklärung scholarship since the 1960s. The impression often has been given of rather isolated, impotent figures living in an oppressive environment where original critical thought was more often than not repressed by tyrannical princes. The new society of of which the Aufklärer dreamed was a society of the future uh, that late 18th century thinkers constructed imaginatively, but that did not in fact yet exist. It seemed self-evident to many scholars that it could not have been realised within the Holy Roman Empire and its territories. This image of a rather disembodied Aufklärung that somehow aspired to create something new, but which tragically remained at the mercy of the old world, is, however, rather misleading. It's easy, of course, to cite examples that seem to reinforce the idea. There's no doubt, for example, that Lessing fell foul of the Duke of Braunschweig or that Duke Karl Eugen of Württemberg incarcerated poor Christian Daniel Schubart without trial for ten years on the Horn Asberg near Stuttgart for daring to lampoon his tyrannical style of government. But these were the exceptions. Many more had to be careful about censorship, but of course that was true of other parts of Europe as well. No country was free of censorship in the 18th century. New work, however, on the Holy Roman Empire over the last few decades has, I think, done a great deal to put the Aufklärung into new perspective. It's also further reinforced the idea that there was a distinctive German national variant of the Enlightenment. And the following points, I think, would be central in that. Firstly, much writing about the Holy Roman Empire has been too influenced by the view that its demise was inevitable, and by often-cited 19th and early 20th century criticisms with the supposedly decrepit and medieval Reich. This, however, ignores the development in the 18th century of an enlightened theory of the Holy Roman Empire, by the 1760s, for example, Johann Stefan Pütter, the leading legal theorist of his day, was propounding the notion that the Reich was a polity composed of numerous particular states, which, however, together again form a state. A kind of idea of a federation, a kind of unique two-tier system of government, which so fascinated many Outside observers, that even someone like Benjamin Franklin, for example, thinking about the future of the uh, American colonies, went to visit Putter in 1766 uh, and uh, took extensive notes on Putter's ideas about the Holy Roman Empire. Putter's ideas became uh, widely accepted and they're even reflected in comments made by some radical enlightened critics. For example, uh, Johann Caspar Riesbeck, who in the 1780s published a series of letters supposedly written by a Frenchman uh, about the current state of Germany. And it's a great surprise to find here that in uh, one of the early letters he praises the Holy Roman Empire as a system comprising many free states which have combined themselves into a certain system characterised by order, wisdom and caution. The empire only seemed odd, Griesbeck wrote, if one made the mistake of regarding it as a unitary state, which was to misunderstand the very nature of the system. The best thing about it, he said, was its built-in safeguard against imperial tyranny. The principle of itio in partes, the division of the Reichstag into two corpora in matters concerning religion, with the provision that no decision could be made that both did not agree with. Riespick noted also with approval the tendency of the King of Prussia to exploit this principle in relation to non-religious matters because he saw this as a further safeguard against imperial tyranny. And this we should remember was a man who mercilessly criticised everything that he encountered in Germany and much that he'd never actually seen himself. He got a lot of it out of newspapers uh, that that he saw as irrational uh, institutions. Merciless for example in, in denouncing monasteries as completely useless or territories which were not yet governed according to enlightened principles. Here is a radical enlightenment critic approving of the Holy Roman Empire in the language of putter the new enlightenment theory of the holy roman empire secondly an important theme in the extensive body of writing about the empire was devoted to the rights of subjects german freedom was variously defined but the catalogue of fundamental rights almost always included the following religious liberty security of property, the right to move freely from one territory to another, the right to appeal to the imperial courts if one's legal rights were infringed by one's ruler. Obviously this didn't work so well in larger territories such as Prussia, which tried very hard to prevent their subjects from using the imperial courts, but these larger territories, this is again often overlooked, had been obliged to institute higher appeal courts of their own that served the same purpose. From the late 17th century onwards, it became conventional for writers to emphasise again and again that the Germans were not slaves and that the freedom enjoyed by princes also pertained to their subjects. And In particular, the rights of German subjects were invariably extensively compared favourably to those of the French who really were slaves at the mercy of the tyrannical and absolute King of France. Thirdly, rights and everything that went with them were also now guaranteed, not only by the courts, but by the press and by what was referred to as the new authority of publicität, by the Enlightenment public sphere, which excoriated and pilloried tyrants and praised wise rulers. Fourthly, these principles did not remain in the world of theory or in the world of print. They were actively practised in the institutions of the empire. They are, for example, reflected in the daily practice of the imperial courts, to which many thousands of subjects of the empire, in fact, did appeal. Uh, for example, between 1765 and 1790, just under half of the 10,000 cases involving uh, uh, some... Uh, 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 just uh, just under... Um, uh, uh, there were some 10,000 cases which were sent to the Reichshofrat uh, in Vienna involving uh, uh, roughly 8,000 people of modest social origin. So it didn't just have to be an aristocrat or a, a wealthy person to appeal to these higher courts. And in the same period, some 7,000 individuals of modest social origin were involved in cases at the other uh, court of appeal, the Reichskammergericht in Wetzlar. Increasingly, these institutions were populated by officials who favoured the new thinking. And the same, I think, could be said of the regional associations of territories, or Kaiser, which in middle and southern Germany in particular developed extensive administrations and which increasingly formulated and implemented economic and social policy, often in collaboration with each other. Fifthly, far from being on the last legs, these institutions were flourishing in the late 18th century and there was no lack of discussion about their future. A recurring theme was the suggestion that the Reichstag might be transformed into an upper house to complement a new House of Commons. Others wanted to extend the functions of the Kaiser or to make them more truly representative of the people as well. Above all, thinking about these matters was more often than not historical, rooted in the historical experience, that is, of the Germans. The milestones of their modern history, it was said again and again, were the reforms of the period around 1500, the struggle against Habsburg tyranny that culminated in the Thirty Years' War, and the Peace of Westphalia, which had reaffirmed the composite polity and the fundamental rights that it guaranteed its inhabitants. This history, it was said, showed a steady progression. It was thus in the 18th century a reasonable history, a history from which it was reasonable to make assumptions about the future. The future, of course, was destroyed. The Empire came to an end not because it was decayed or decrepit, but because it suffered the relentless onslaught of French armies from 1792 and because Napoleon was determined that it should cease. But both the discussion and the memory of the institutions of the empire informed German political debate into the 20th century. These issues also have important implications, I think, for our understanding of the Aufklärung and indeed for the subsequent history of Germany. For all the talk about a departure from the old Zondervig narratives of German history, the Zondervig, in fact, remains in place. In almost every modern account, the old empire was programmed to fail and its failure forms the dismal backdrop to the disaster that unfolded in Germany in the 19th and 20th centuries. In other words, the the old narrative of early modern history in Germany is still very much there and still shapes, in a sense, or is said to shape, the way in which Germany (coughs) developed, first of all in a late or retarded way, and secondly, in an ultimately disastrous way. Understanding, however, the imperial context of the Aufklärung helps us, I think, do two things. Firstly, it puts the dominant views of that movement into perspective, its gradualism, its rejection of revolutionary solutions, its sense of being the product of a uniquely German state framework and national history. Secondly, it provides a new perspective on the post-Enlightenment in Germany, or perhaps one might even say the continuing Enlightenment. There were, of course, critics of the Aufklärung, as indeed there have been throughout the 18th century. But in future, perhaps, we should pay more attention to other things as well, and one might think of the following short list. The of Volksaufklärung, which persisted through the middle decades of the 19th century, propagated not at the high level of philosophers in the succession of Hegel, but by local reformers, by teachers, by clergy who were propagating these ideals of the late 18th century well into the 1850s and 1860s. The political debates about representative and judicial institutions that I've mentioned already. The debates about law and citizens' rights and the safeguarding of civil society, the continuing concern in Germany about religious freedom and liberty of conscience, the significance of German secularism as a fourth confession into the 19th century, perhaps the heirs of German religious radicalism and free thinking. An enormous amount of attention has been devoted by historians to the emergence of the radical right in late 19th century Germany, yet the solid middle also persisted. The key legacies of the Aufklärung, the Rechtsstaat, the state, the rule of law, liberties, toleration, it's true that they were undermined in the short term by Nazism in particular circumstances created by war, defeat, incomplete and contested regime change and the economic chaos of the 1920s. Yet the continuity of Aufklärung ideals into the second half of the 20th century is striking, and should, I think, play a major part in any future narrative of German history from the later Middle Ages to the present. This narrative would involve both a new approach to the Aufklärung and to the way the history of its reception has been written since the late 19th century. It is, I think, a story that is more complex and infinitely more fascinating than the one Jonathan Israel has told. Thank you very much.